So everybody's heard the old adage, right? Which came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> well, we've, <laughs> well we, we've got something similar in the realm of Christian theology that's been rolling around in the minds of the theologians since the days of the early church. It goes something like this. Which comes first, faith or the new birth? Faith or the new birth. So do you muster up a rudimentary faith of your own and then bring it to Christ to acknowledge? Or does the Holy Spirit cause your heart to be reborn so that you see the irresistible beauty of God's offer of salvation and come willingly to it? And you're going to see the answer to that today as we continue our look at the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians. Um, the, the reference is wrong in the bulletin, but I'll give you the right one. We're reading 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 13 to 17. And listen for the voice of the Spirit. Paul writes, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved of the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort, and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts, and establish them in every good work and word. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, in Jesus Christ, the good work and the good word are yours. And so come now and confirm and apply what we've heard and anoint the exposition of it. Uh, we ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you might, you might have noticed that uh, the section of scripture that I read you begins with the word but. Kind of an odd place to start a sentence. And I think we talked about this before because Paul has used that conjunction on us before in this letter. And we know that whenever we see it, whether it's in scripture or it comes up in conversation or, or anywhere else, it's kind of a heads up that something in the conversation is about to be different, right? That's the way the word but is used. It's, it's used to introduce an added statement Usually something that's different from what you've just said right before. And so we've got to start out today, uh, we've got to remember then what Paul is, is butting us away from. Which is away from the preceding thought in the text we looked at last week, where he warns both his first century audience and us about the rise of the deception of the Antichrist. And so he says, going back to verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And therefore God sends them strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So Paul begins in verse 13 with a word uh, that contrasts what he will say in this section about the Thessalonian believers with what he has just said about those who reject the truth and who fall for the delusion of the man of lawlessness. And so he's saying, 
you needn't be confused or upset about those things. Not about the dangers on the horizon, because if you're in Christ, they can't touch you. And not confusion about the nature of salvation that's already at work among you. A word Paul says that God conceived and began before you were even born into this world. When he says to us today, but we ought always to thank, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you when? Yes, yeah, the first fruits from the beginning, from the beginning to be saved. And church, when you think about that, that ought to touch you. That ought to warm you and excite your heart and, and get your thoughts racing down to the very core of your being. Because the truth of the nature of salvation that is presented in the plain reading of Scripture is that God has had a plan in place to save you long before you ever realized that you even needed saving. Okay? And he's been working it out and working you into it without you even realizing it. And in the process of that, we see the answer to the age-old question of which came first, faith or the new birth. The answer is the new birth. And it's not because Paul says it. And it's not because I say it. And it's not because it's something that is a part and parcel of the Reformed doctrine we hold to. It's because it was the teaching and the testimony of none other than our Lord Jesus Christ himself. From a section of Scripture I know that most all of you are familiar with, even if you aren't all that familiar with Scripture, and that is from the Gospel of John chapter 3. And the very familiar story of Jesus' late night encounter with a man by the name of Nicodemus. Uh, a man who was supposed to be one of the preeminent teachers of Israel, but who, when he found himself standing before our Lord, uh, ended up feeling as unprepared as an idle schoolboy who forgot to do his homework. So I want us to look at it together, uh, and then we'll dive in a little bit deeper. But I'm gonna, it's a little bit of a long reading, but it's really very important. Gospel of John chapter 3. Uh, and I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 21. But, but you know what? Even if you know it, like, just, just do yourself and be a favor. Just pretend like you don't know what I'm going to read. Like, just pretend like you don't know what comes next or like you don't maybe know this by heart. Just, li just listen. Okay? So John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that your teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works are evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out. Now, do you think after Jesus said all this, that poor Nicodemus just sat there for a while like a deer caught in the headlights? Right? I mean, I know he, he came there kind of confused, looking for answers, ready maybe to gain some kind of enlightenment. But nothing, I don't think, could have prepared him in all of his years of study and academic training for what Jesus had just laid out so casually in a very brief conversation, maybe around a flickering candlelight in the evening. But truth be told, he really should have known what Jesus was talking about, and better yet, who Jesus actually was, because it's all laid out in Old Testament Scripture for everyone to see. Uh, scriptures Nicodemus had, had read himself possibly hundreds of times. Uh, in fact, he probably, even because of his age and position, had memorized large portions of Hebrew Scripture. But there was just one problem, as Jesus told him very plainly in verse 3. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Can't see it. Which actually, it's, it's a little bit of humor that we miss in the story. It's really kind of funny if you think about it. Because here's old seasoned Professor Nicodemus asking this young itinerant Rabbi Jesus uh, about how to look into the nature of salvation, the deep things of God. And, and just kind of already knowing his heart, Jesus stops him right there and says, Hey, hey, you know, Nick, I'm, I'm happy to explain it. But if your spiritual eyes haven't been opened by the Father, you're not going to see it. Jesus spells it out anyway for him. And when they're all done, Nicodemus says, nope, still don't see it. <laughs> and so he asked Jesus in verse 9, he said, how can these things be? And Jesus said, oh, okay, wait a minute, let's, let's back up a little bit. He reminds Nicodemus of the story of how the people of God in the Exodus had forgotten very quickly how many times and in how many ways the Lord had already rescued them and about the fact that they had gotten so accustomed to taking God for granted, as people are wont to do, that they began to complain about everything. They complained about the manna that God gave them to eat from heaven. They began to complain about the water they gave them to drink from the rock. In fact, it says in Numbers 21.5, he said, they began to speak against God and Moses. And they said, why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There's nothing to eat here, nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. And so the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, and many were bitten and died. And then the people came out to Moses and cried out, We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. And so Moses prayed for the people, and then the Lord told him, Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. And all who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be now, don't ask me how it worked, because it's a miracle. I don't know how it worked, but I know it worked. God commanded the 
bronze serpent be raised high on a pole as a means of salvation for the Israelites who were bitten by the serpents in the wilderness. And brothers and sisters, in the very same way, Jesus is God's means of salvation today for people who have been bitten by the deadly venom of sin in the wilderness of his fallen world. And so as a type, as a shadow, as an example, the bronze serpent was a visual representation of God's wrath against a grumbling and complaining, disobedient and willful people. But it also represented a turning away of that wrath because whoever looked at it was saved. Church, so it is with the cross of Christ. And Jesus is preparing Nicodemus for the idea that before his messianic work is through, that just like the bronze serpent was the central and all-sufficient means of healing for the Israelites, the cross of Calvary was going to be the central and all-sufficient means of the work of Christ and our redemption. And brothers and sisters, for us today, just as God chose a weak and stammering man in Moses to lift up the bronze serpent on a pole, so that people might look at it and be healed. God has chosen weak and failable human ministers to hold up Jesus in the preaching of the gospel of Christ crucified. So that men and women today might look at it and be saved. Because you're not saved in a pastor, you're saved in the gospel. And you know, for them, just as telling them to look at a bronze serpent on a stick probably seemed at the time like a foolish means of being healed of deadly snake bites, I can tell you. That today for many looking at a crucified Savior, looking at an executed dying man hanging on a Roman cross, seems like a very foolish means in the eyes of the world for the salvation of sinners condemned to death. Particularly, particularly in a me-centered culture that we live in today. Because a display like that doesn't have a me at the center. It's not about me. It doesn't elevate the idea of me. It doesn't give me a shot in the arm. It doesn't give me a pat on the back. In fact, it doesn't, at least at first glance, do anything for me at all except showcase the ugliness of all the meanness of being me. But brothers and sisters, it is the only avenue to the new birth Jesus spoke about when he said to Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. At church, Jesus' message today couldn't be more crystal clear. You know, he could have used any illustration, any illustration at all, in the heights of heaven or the depth of earth to compare the gift of salvation, but he intentionally chose the illustration of birth. So just by a show of hands, how many of you, how many in here had anything to do with their pre-planning of their physical birth? Anybody? Anybody set up a meeting with your prospective parents and iron out all the details about, you know, choose where and when you're going to show up? Of course you did. You just woke up one day and you were here, right? You existed. <laughs> and you were brought, you were brought into being by God's miracle of procreation without having a clue, at least for a while, without having a clue about how you got here. And church, the same is true of our rebirth into the kingdom. It is the invisible work of the Holy Spirit. That is why Jesus said very clearly, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Because church, the Holy Spirit works and we see the results, but God determines the where and the when and the who. And what's really remarkable here too, I think, is Jesus' rebuke of Nicodemus when he says, are you a teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? And he's saying, how is it you don't already know this? <laughs> but you know, we know our Lord Jesus' character well enough to know that he never asked a question without a purpose. And he wasn't trying to trip Nicodemus up or to make him look foolish. 
Jesus was asking this to make him think. He was asking this to make him think about how salvation works. And to think about the scriptures that he already claimed to know. One of which would have been Ezekiel 36. Where God says to the people, Thus says the Lord God, It's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And then he said, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you to your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you'll be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. You will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. And then he closes it out by saying, again, it's not for your sake that I will act, declare the Lord. Let that be known to you. To be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. I didn't count them exactly, but last time I think we talked about this kind of like eight times, the Lord said, I will. I said, I will gather you. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I'll cleanse you. I'll, I'll put a new heart in you. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And church, when you gather up all of those ideas together and look at it again through the lens of what Paul has been writing to the Thessalonians and trying to explain to them and to us, then, then he says today, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. To this, this is what he called you to. Church, Jesus called you effectively Directly, personally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, showing you the love of God in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, that in conversion, he graciously applies to your heart and soul by the wind of the Spirit through the waters of rebirth into the kingdom of God. And you aren't going to get there any other way. Why? Because the Bible says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Right? That means exactly what it says. The natural man, the natural woman does not want Christ and will never want Christ unless or until the Holy Spirit plants a desire for Christ in their hearts. And it's only then once that desire is planted that those who come to Christ don't come kicking and screaming against their will. They come because they want to come. Because their hearts and minds have been unblinded and now they can see the great love of God and the beauty of the gospel. And so they come now because they desire Jesus above everything else and nothing in this world can keep them away from it. So there's one commentator said this, he said in that case they rush to the Savior. That being the whole point of God's irresistible grace and that the rebirth quickens someone to spiritual life in such a way that Jesus is now seen in all of his irresistible sweetness. That's the call. And that, that call is going out to you today. Man or woman. Young person or old. First time listener or long time member. That's the call that's going out in God's gracious offer of salvation. And today might very well be your birthday to the kingdom. This might be. 
by the washing of God's Holy Spirit over that stony heart of yours. So I want to close with a, a thought and a, a quote and a kind of helpful word of application from John Calvin. I think this is so beautiful. Where he says, in paraphrase, he says, Salvation flows to us from the mercy of God exclusively as from a fountain. Hence, we must not seek the cause of it in ourselves as if we, by our own means, moved God to assign us his favor. For whence comes the day of salvation? He says, it comes to each one of us which it is offered at the acceptable time. That is the time which God has in his free favor appointed. And he continues it in the meantime. Let's keep in view what Paul designed to teach here that there is need of prompt reception that we may not allow the opportunity to pass untaken. Inasmuch as it displeases God that the grace that he offered to us should be received by coolness and indifference. As church father, he says, while the gospel is preached to us, we know assuredly that the way is open for us into the kingdom of God and that there is a signal of divine benevolence raised aloft to invite us to receive salvation. Today's the day. He closes the quote by saying, but, and there's that but, but, that time is short until the door will be shut against all that have not entered in while opportunity was afforded. So brothers and sisters, don't leave here today with that opportunity unafforded. Today is the day to be saved. Don't leave here today without seizing that opportunity while it's offered. And you can do that right where you sit. You don't have to walk down the aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to repeat a, a verbatim prayer. You don't have to work for it and you can't earn it. Just if, if you hear, if you hear that call of the Spirit, then the Bible says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And then just, just see me later and let me know you've done that so we can talk about what comes next. But, but I encourage you today, I, I invite you today, I, I, I admonish you today to repent and believe the gospel and do that in Jesus' name. He's already done all the work. Gracious Father, we thank you for sending your son, your only son, who you love to die for the sins of your people. We thank you for the wind of your Holy Spirit breathing new life into cold, dead hearts this morning. We thank you, Father, for calling us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. But, you know, Lord, there may be some here this morning that, that haven't heard that yet. There may be some listening online that haven't heard that yet. Some who aren't forgiven, some who don't see and who don't hear. And Lord, so please, in this moment, surprise all of those ones by the power and reality of your presence. We ask, Father, to grant the gift of repentance and the gift of life, that they may know the one who loved the world so much, even Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.